0: Welcome everybody to the Glass Labs podcast. So, um, I think today we're going to be talking about product development tools, and uh, you know, essentially how our lives have been made easier by the advent of things like 3D printing, uh, quick turn PCBs, uh, you know, inexpensive pick and place tools. Basically, we're just going to talk about uh, you know all the things that sort of make what we do here uh, at Glassboard. Uh, a little bit more, uh, you know, doable, faster, easier, etc. So in general, uh, the glass labs podcast, will be talking about all kinds of different things. We'll be interviewing folks, um, you know, here in the city and elsewhere, um, just talking to different people that are in the product development space and sort of just, uh, makers in general. So, uh, Grant, I, uh, I think we'll kind of lead it
1: off with, with you today. I think you want to talk a little bit about uh, 3D printing, right? All of my favorite toys. <laughs> I mean, and it's, it's more than just the 3D printing, I think, that's made what we do so easy nowadays. It's that everything is now a click, right? If I want to make something, I can click and my 3D printer, it comes out. If I need to lick at something in a different material, I can pop a different resin in our SLA printers. <laughs> it's that democratization of how easy it's gotten to do everything is changed what we do as a business from being you needing know, a team of people that all have expertise and model making and prototyping and woodworking and metalworking to a few guys in a shop with a laundry list of very fun toys can make things really cool, really fast. And I think that's what I want to talk about today, all the way from the 3D printers to the software that drives them to the CAD tools that drives them. Also for you guys, on the electrical side, you guys have equally as cool tools that I do nowadays. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I, um,
0: it's kind of funny to bring him up, but you know, I saw a video, uh, I think it was everyday astronaut last Mm -hmm. week, uh, where they were touring Starbase, and, and Elon was talking about, and and I thought this was kind of insightful about how it used to be the design was everything, right? Like Mm -hmm. all of the effort was put into the design. You know, there were just rooms full of hundreds and hundreds of engineers behind draft you know, draftsman boards, designing the cars, designing the mm-hmm. products, stuff like that. Uh, whereas now he's talking about how, you know, almost a hundred percent of the challenges in prototyping and manufacturing, right. like the tools have gotten so good from a design perspective. It's not that there aren't difficult design problems mm-hmm. that still exist. It's just that most of the problems today crop up in manufacturing More so than they do in design. And I think that kind of is a little bit being proofed out even in where we see our challenges like at Glassboard, right? Like I feel like our CAD packages have gotten so good that we can design a circuit board in sometimes as little as a week or we can, you know, you guys can, can, you know, CAD up 3D models very quickly, Mm -hmm. but it's way more difficult to figure out how to prototype those or, and and, you know, then eventually manufacture those. Again, I just look at recent
1: projects where we had like a three or four week delay, just getting a really advanced PCB made, right? Right, -hmm. right. no, and I think the, to piggyback off that CAD discussion, that's what's gotten so unbelievably good. It's not even worth talking about anymore, right? Like one guy in his bedroom can design a spaceship more or less, right? Mm -hmm. Your computer can hold all the data. You can record all the connections, all the bolts, all you can simulate the stresses and the beams. Like you can do it all on your computer. And what's recently become cool is how closer and closer we're getting to be able to prototype those things in a smaller setup. Right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Beforehand, you worked at General Motors, you had access to a huge CNC facility, and somebody named you know Tom would go and cam out your part and cut it on a huge hundred thousand dollar Haas machine. Mm-hmm. Whereas nowadays, you know, it's not a huge piece or it's not super complex. You can throw that in a Fusion, which costs what five hundred dollars a year to get licensed to, and have professional multi-axis cam. And if you want to spend thirty five hundred or four thousand bucks. You can get a Bantam CNC in your desktop that literally fits in your desktop, it could fit in your house, is not out of place inside, and can cut really complex shapes out of, you know, aluminums and plastics and things. So I think how fast that's gone from, oh, this is something you only get access to at a big company with huge budgets and huge pieces of equipment to now you get this technology is coming back down the pipeline is such an amazing tool. And I think the blending of the techs is where we at Glassword see a huge amount of the value. So one of the the huge blends we did is when do you machine versus when do you 3D print? And that's a, a tough call because, you know, 3D printing takes time, but no effort. Machining also takes some time, but more importantly, it takes, you know, you have to cam it out and set it up and, and fixture it all. And one of the things we did is blend those two things together. So we had this really complex part of vendor wanted us to change the geometry. right It was an injection molded part that we needed to modify for prototyping. And it had no flat surfaces, and nowhere to grip on it. There was no, nothing to clamp into a vice or screw down to the, you know, the wasteboard. So we came up with this 3d printed, um, basically a fixture that you drop that part into. it was perfectly contoured. We just took the part in CAD and subtracted it out of a block, put a bunch of holes underneath and put a vacuum on it. And you take that part, drop it in, turn the vacuum pump on it and it sucks it right into place. And cause it's contoured every nook and and curve, it was completely located. So, we had this nice flat XYZ to go tap off on the mill to get the zero for the coordinates of the cam. And we were able to modify that part. And, you know, it was a day instead of trying to make a machine a custom fixture to then put that part into and do all that. Again, it was 30 minutes in CAD, three hours in the printer. And then I just put it on the machine and hit go. It was great.
2: Well, and, I think a big thing too nowadays is speed to market is so critical. And it's one of the most important selling features of our company, for, for sure. But being able to get to your your market quicker than everybody else is huge. And these tools Mm -hmm. allow us to do that, right? There's a reason that people come to us and it's because we can rapidly develop products that a lot of other people can't. And that's entirely because of the tools we have and availability, right? You know, you still have to understand how to use the, the paintbrush at the end of the day. Um, but I, th- I think having those tools again, it gives you, us a leg up and ability to move quickly. Do you
0: think people see the the value in the in-house prototyping? Do you think people are still mostly focused on, you know, I just need engineering and product development? Right, and they right. sort of just assume that you'll work with whatever vendors it takes to help build their their product. Do you oh. think like people see the value of having more and more of that expertise like, like all under one roof in one, like under, you know, in one, at a bare minimum,
2: right. We're, we're cutting out a middleman of shipping, right. That's always a big challenge. You know, one of the lead times is just waiting for parts to show up. We don't have to worry about that. If there's a three day shipping, that doesn't exist for us. We make it right. And it literally comes off the printer. Right. right? Yeah. Um, So I think that's great. But on the flip side, it's also, I think, created a lot of noise because there's a lot of people who can really quickly develop something that hasn't been fully thought out. So I think there still has to be a process of how do we utilize the tools in a way that still makes good product just because we can make it fast doesn't mean we should skip steps. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that's still a, an approach that a lot of companies are still trying to figure out like just because we can print it doesn't mean we should. Right. And I think that's where we do a lot of Mm -hmm. that kind of going back and forth with clients of, you know, what are you trying to get out of this part? And can we get away with the materials that 3d printing allow us to use? And uh, I think those are important conversations to have early on.
1: And I think that blends into my prior statement of like blending the technologies having 3d printing allows me to make castings much faster silicone or urethane or other two parts right so it used to be you have to carve out your your piece out of you know wax or foam core or something and Mm -hmm. then you make you'd pour a silicone mold around it and then use that mold to make urethane castings or whatnot Mm -hmm. this is a multi-day process it's all hands-on it's all artisan right whereas i can go design my part in 3d make a mold in my CAD tool that's associative. So every time I make a change in the part, the mold auto updates and I just hit reprint. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the next morning I come in, wash the mold, cure it, and I can shoot parts that same day. And if I can put accelerant in like the urethane that makes them cure really quickly, I can pull four and five parts out of a day out of a single mold. Right, right. And the urethane and silicon's got much stronger properties than your 3D printed flexible stuff, right? Or even your 3D printed rigid stuff. Mm-hmm. You can bump that up again because with the new form labs, like injection molding stuff, you can print in their rigid 10k an injection mold and we have a desktop injection molder but they make even medium-sized injection molding machines for small shops like us that we can then print tooling to send it to that machine and get injection molded parts out
2: yep right so looking back at like you know the ecad side what's really nice and i think this is the same for the tools on the mcad side is you know years ago we'd have to worry very much so about the intricate details, you know, impedance matching and link matching and routing in these really particular ways where now the tools can really aid in helping a lot of that. So now we get really focused more on the real application and the function and the usability of the product versus like, okay, I need to spend three days measuring all these links and making sure they match all the stuff. Like that has to happen to make the product work, but it's kind of something that used to get in the way and add a lot of development time that you didn't need. And it's kind of nice that we can focus more on the product itself than... Versus just trying to figure out how to make the tools make the stuff we want. So I yeah, think that's really intriguing.
0: I, I find the value in sort of building prototypes quickly, testing them, getting real world data mm-hmm. out of that, and then make the whole design process much more quicker and iterative, right? Mm-hmm. Like right. rather than trying to, you know, sit down, you know, big focus group, big document with product requirements. Again, you still need to do some of that. Certainly there's, there's value there. So I don't want to discount that, but you know, I think that what's really cool today is somebody can have an idea, sort of flesh that out pretty quickly into a prototype, and then you can actually go give it to people. Maybe it doesn't have 100% of the features, but maybe it's got 80% of them, and really go figure out if that is a product that uh, they enjoy using, or if there's additional features, or things that maybe you designed into it that they don't like, and you can take that back out, right? But being able, I think, to get to that prototype get feedback on something that actually looks and feels Mm -hmm. relatively close to what maybe the real product would be. uh, And then being able to integrate quickly off of that, I think is, is really, really cool.
2: I do think that's a big challenge for, you know, in particular, our larger clients is not, not being aware of these tools and how they work. They're still stuck in this old school way where you need to spend months of, you know, reviewing and looking at every schematic and every line and look at every drawing and can go months. But back then it was gonna take months to fabricate it. So right. you wanted to spend that time because you didn't want to waste it. Because right. if you if you built your part and it was wrong, you had to go months again with right. get to the next right. iteration. So trying to trying to get people educated on the process of it's okay to fail and fail fast, like because we're only gonna lose a few days, not a few months anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely a a trend that's easy for us as a small company to do it, but I think it's gonna be very valuable to larger companies as they start to embrace it and hopefully we can help them embrace it and that's really what we're trying to do here
0: i mean speaking of the fabrication side so like ricky maybe you can talk a little bit about like uh like the bantham right i mean that is a for people that don't know uh it's a inexpensive you know cnc uh you know tabletop tool Mm -hmm. um really inexpensive really approachable but um like in your opinion what does that look like in terms of actually you know setting that up and and getting it to do the kinds of things that are valuable because i do think that there is a class of like cheap maker tool that um while they can potentially be useful or do some things you know there's really inexpensive like 3d printers it's like other than just printing you know a nice little figurine or like Mm -hmm. a test you know print or something like they Mm -hmm. struggle to do What I would call like real world type things and engineering quality. So I mean, what what I guess maybe walk us a little bit through like that process, Ricky, of just like that's a brand new tool. You know, that's something that's new. So obviously, there's some sure there's some like issues and bugs and stuff to be worked out. Yeah,
3: yeah. I mean, there's bugs and stuff to it, but I guess we just. It's not like nothing too big. It's never a showstopper. Mm. Right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're just going to
1: call them out of the podcast. Like the <laughs> conductive sensor, getting chips in it, If you have to reset it and blow that out. That's annoying. Right. Other yeah. than that is perfect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah. kind
2: we're, of having, We're pivoting to the section where we complain now about Right, it, right, right. 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 Randy's yeah, favorite part. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah.
3: but <laughs> kind of having like an outsider's view into the product development world, being able to like cut something you need right away on the Bantam or any CNC that we have, like it's just insane to me. Like um, thinking about how you guys created products before three D printers, I'm like, oh, yeah. the amount of time that is saved, and same with the CNCs, the amount of time that is saved is just insane to me. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's crazy. I just don't get it. Well, it's honestly.
2: come a long way too. Like even in the last five years. Oh yeah. I mean, right.
3: The cost alone
2: is always a shocker to me. Like, you know, when you guys bring up, hey, we're looking at buying this tool, in my head, I'm like, oh man, this here's another $20,000 machine. And they're like, ah, no, it's only about five. You're like, oh wow. Like, can we get (laughs) Tail? How is that possible? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like, let's do it, you know? Yeah. yeah. it is it's amazing just not alone the capability but the cost and i think the cost is the big one with especially on the 3d printing side right yeah, and 3d printing is not new no right? it's been around since what the 80s at least bare right moment. but stratus
1: has owned all the patents and they're the right. only guys and it's all crazy right. Right. expensive and then right. once that patent expired like the floodgates opened and right. it almost to a negative point right sure, so the yeah. first floodgates opened, you had all these cheap guys coming in that mm-hmm. built, as drew was saying these cheap hobbyist printers that they're great if you want to build a figurine or three print a little like doorstop at home or like
3: yeah, play around with the sure. like I
1: have a hundred and twenty dollars FDM printer home. It's a potato, but it prints really usable stuff if you know how to use it. <laughs> really right, high, right, quality right. Potatoes. really <laughs> high quality <laughs> it's potatoes. It's an expensive potato. Um, it yeah. just is limited as material, and more importantly, it's limited in how accurate it really can be. And and that's where you transition between like this hobbyist grade and the engineering grade right if you mm-hmm. can give up a half millimeter here or there they're fantastic machines but if you're trying to do like snap fits or live hinges or parts that have to really fit together without being sanded and massaged mm-hmm. every time you need to go you know up in the chain but as Randy's saying up in the chain used to be 50 grand 100 grand now up right. in the chain is like two of three grand right that's all right. you really need Right, you know, between the Form Lab stuff and even the Ultimaker, like that FDM printer's got some really high quality parts we get oh, off of it.
2: We we need to talk about the Cricut. I mean, oh like, man, <laughs> talk about like the biggest bang for your buck, right? So for you know, me, for those true. of you that
1: don't know, the Cricut is a little XY cutter. So it's you know you put blades like razor blades or roller blades in it, and it's mm. meant for like what do you even call it? like fashion?
2: It's hobbies. kind of
0: like the whole like Etsy crowd, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's right. what it's
1: really targeted at is like the home,
0: you know hobbyist creator type. And right? you want to like cut out custom
2: your, core again, Yeah, you yeah. cut out your greeting
1: cards and you can do like silhouettes and then put
2: another card right. behind it have it scrapbooker. Scrapbook You can
3: make scrap amazing bookers. scrapbooks. Yeah. And you can <laughs> cut fabric.
1: So if you have like a pattern you need to cut, yep. um, you can do that and it's mm-hmm. hot. so but it's really cheap. It looks exactly like an HP inkjet printer from about two thousand nine. Yep. And it's like a what two hundred bucks or something or three hundred bucks? Yeah, cheap. and we have yeah. abused that thing within inches oh, of what? The life. The funny thing yeah. is, is
0: I talk to more engineers that have the Cricut, and they're like, <laughs> oh, "It's yeah. my favorite tool." I mean, yeah, yeah. like you Tom. know, we, we've got you know, buddy here locally uh, who's an absolutely brilliant engineer, and I mean, this guy's got, got access to every tool on the planet, yeah. right? I mean, he's got uh, he's got his own laser cutters, yeah. you know, CNC machines, lathes, and honestly, he's he, the thing he la- he like raves about probably the most consistently is his cricket yeah, he's yeah. like he's like it's indispensable right and right. it's just so funny how a tool that's that relatively simple and cheap i think works so well for so many different use cases from mm-hmm. engineering to you know again the people that are making, making or, yeah, or, yeah all well, of i think
2: it goes to show like you know Whatever tool you can give an engineer, we'll figure other ways to use it. Right? Yeah, I mean, we'll find know, ways true. to use it. I can I only imagine. Intended. Yeah, the Cricut company probably had no idea, right? We're, were, rubber like, rubber oh, we're, we're gonna be making <laughs> <Yeah>. this for <laughs> people who are making, you know, greeting cards. Yeah, not thinking we're gonna be. Cutting out gaskets, that right, are actually like, going on a product, like you know? full
1: size corrugate box prototyping, right? Right, when like, right? Oh, well, you know, I don't have a die cutter here, but I've got right. a Cricut,
2: right? And this isn't to like tell Cricut to raise your prices or anything either. No. Like, but if you wanted <laughs> to triple the price and make
1: a more industrial one, I'd right. buy it tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, they, still, they need oh, to yeah. make a one in matte black on the outside. Yeah, <laughs> I do like our white and powder blue, but matte black. Yeah. Would be very nice.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's another thing that's amazing about circuit boards nowadays. We can get them any color we want. You yeah, and like back in the day, like not that old, thirty five, but you know, back in when I was doing my early twenties, like that's like a $10,000, like increase in yeah, board yeah, cost just right. to make it black. And yeah. who wants an ugly green I mean, board nowadays, right? Come on.
0: You're a glass board, you can have your board in any color as long as it's matte black. With that's right. Right. <laughs> Gold Enig that's on, right. The, on the side. Especially
2: of... on the logo, yeah, 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 yeah that's for like, sure. Yeah. Nice.
0: Thanks Apple for wrecking every engineer in the industry,
1: you know? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Setting the bar really high. Yeah,
0: yep. You know that
2: circuit board we designed that goes inside that enclosure no one sees? Man, it looks good. Right, yep, <laughs> yep. <laughs> If they happen to take it apart, it's going to look nice, right? Hey, you might as well. <laughs> hey, right sure.
1: to repair laws are going to make that a lot more visible, right? That's right. We want them yeah.
2: to be really impressed when they crack that thing open
1: to replace the HDMI port. Now, no yeah. one
2: cracks open the products we develop. Of course, you don't need to. They no, they work <laughs> flawlessly. And there's no need to, to service them. No, but which I mean great. that is a good
0: segue. Honestly, we could talk a little bit about that. Um, I mean, there's you know lots of uh, I think stuff going on right now with right to repair. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, federally, I think there's some talk of, of potentially putting some rules in place, uh, to try and guarantee that it seems like there's a lot of action at the state level. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know, do you guys kind of have any opinions on that? I mean, I know, I mean, obviously I think I'm, I'm very for it. I, I think that, uh, I, I think the right to repair is like both a, a consumer side issue in terms of, you know, obviously people's ability to repair the things that they own and, and make them, you know, work. But I also think there's a huge side of it too, just to the learning and the tinker side of things. Again, I mean, I literally got into engineering primarily from taking stuff apart. I mean, I like, there's right. this like famous photo in my family and I was like three years old in a. You know, one of those onesie zip ups, right. With the, you know, right, with, right. Feedies, yeah, with the feedies and stuff. And I'm sitting there, you know, and it's Christmas and I, you know, probably had, you know, a, a bunch of toys under the tree and there I am in the hallway. The best gift I got that year was my parents wrapped our old answering machine. And you know, I'm sitting there with a screwdriver and, you know, just tearing it apart in the back hallway. Right. Um, but I, I think there's a certain amount of importance to like the ability to, to take stuff apart, both to repair it, but also I think just to, to tinker with it, to use it for a different purpose, just, to to be able to to take it apart to to learn from it, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, I had as a kid drawers full of electronics. I took apart, you right. know, didn't have a clue what they did, but they looked cool, right? right. And I'm like, man, I'm gonna build some kind of machine. It never happened, you know. Right. You can ask my parents about how many, you know, VHS. You know, putting my age there a little bit. So for those that don't know, a VHS is this black thing that <laughs> <laughs> has, has magnetic, magnetic tape. tape in it, <laughs> and you would have to like rewind it before you took it back to the the movie rental place. Um, but yeah, I took apart all of our VCRs and TVs and all the players and and never to really repair them. It was really just out of curiosity, but yeah, I agree. I think we need to make sure people have an ability to take things apart because one, you know, they bought them, they own them. should be able to do that. Now, are people going to be capable of repairing some of these devices? I think there's going to be a challenge there. Um, I mean, I have In, I have a great example, right? And just, this is where I
1: get torn. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I just
2: bought an Xbox, and you know, you guys have all seen it. We damaged right. the, the HDMI port on that. Like something that for us would be relatively easy to fix, right. but it's very complex. So you got to really rip that thing apart and. You know, who knows if you can fix it or not and get it all back together. And even if you do, if something else happens, now you're almost guaranteed that. There's yeah. warranty I mean, warranty I, and I yeah. think there's,
0: I do think there's a different, there's a, I think there's a distinction between the right to repair and the, and making things repairable. Right. I mean, right. I do think okay. that exactly. to, to a certain extent, technology is going to progress. Things are getting smaller. Things are getting more complex. They certainly are getting harder to work on um so I, I don't think you could necessarily like mandate or you'd want to legislate things that are going to hold the technology back because this is right. what i want to talk about right I'm,
1: this is where i'm super torn on right to repair i think that you have to like force people to be able to allow you to reflash it if you put it, a new memory chip in there right like john deere's famous if you have a cpu module out in your tractor right and you buy one on the third party you have to go like basically jailbreak your tractor to get it to boot. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, John Deere wants to charge you money to come flash your tractor back to working with this new module, which I think is nuts. Like that kind of software lockout is just a money grab. Mm But On the flip side, let's go look at Apple, our favorite people that make things unrepairable. Mm -hmm. They do it nine times out of 10 to save that last half millimeter, to save that that nth degree of weight or sleekness or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And I would never want to stop them from that. Right. I would never say, Apple, you have to make this repairable. Again, maybe you have you have to sell the CPU card or like the the PCBs, mm-hmm. but you don't have to engineer it in a way that's friendly to right. repair, and, and that's right. where. I'm and heard. I think that's the argument, like Lewis Rossman, who um, is a
0: you know a guy on YouTube that runs a repair business out of New York City and is like kind of the face, I guess, in a way of like right to repair um, in many places right now. You know, I, I think his argument is just that though, Grant, is that it's it's okay uh, for it to be difficult, right? Like it's, it's okay that you might have to take your phone to maybe an independent repair shop right. to, to get the service because you're just not mm-hmm. going to have the tools, the expertise, the knowledge. But I think, you know, largely his argument is, is that whole deal where, the you know, out. you have the lockout or whatever, um, where you, you physically can't buy the, the IC and the components. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I, and I, I think I, that's, that, that one really does Kind of, I I think is just like like not okay,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Right, and I think that's where I draw my line. Like you, if we're gonna do right to repair, it, you have to sell the com- the components to people that want to repair their products, right? Like right. for some number of years, support the product and like produce them. Yeah, mm-hmm. but you don't have to make it easy to get to. Right, and I think the other one that's really tough is that software lockout, and I don't well, know how to enable. Well, I think all part tools. of the
2: you know as a business owner, I can understand the, the concern about liability, right? Like if, Mm -hmm. if someone's able to, in the case of, you know, like John Deere, they're going to find a third party part that they install into the, to the third product, you know, does John Deere want to warrant that now? Because they're using a third party, right? So I can understand the hesitation from that standpoint, but at the same time, like if consumers want the ability, like they are the people who buy your product. Yeah. like quit making it difficult for them and, to fix the stuff they're right. paying the for. And, right? and there
0: are some laws on the books already that kind of speak to this, right? Which is that you know I, I think the way that it's essentially written today is that the onus is on the manufacturer that if if you repair something right and. Um, you know, you, you send it in after the fact or whatever the case may be, right. you know, if, if they can prove that, yeah, like you completely damaged this, or, you know, Randy, you went to replace the HDMI connector on your mm-hmm. Xbox and you completely like fried half the circuit board, right? right. They're, like, not gonna they're not going to cover it. Yeah. But I think f- just to just say, well, no, you opened the box, right? Therefore, you know, your, your warranty is void right, right, right off the bat. Even if you did a, a good job or you did a repair to something mm-hmm. that's completely, you know, in a separate area or irrelevant to the, to the right, current right. issue. Um, and again, I I think the other issue too is, is security and privacy, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. again, I think to a certain extent, I think John Deere would make the argument that, you know, we, um, you know these these are heavy machinery Mm -hmm. if somebody were to modify this this firmware this source code Mm -hmm. or somebody's going to sell you a sensor uh a gps sensor right Mm -hmm. that uh maybe isn't up to the right standards or to the right accuracy and the tractor you know runs over you know Mm -hmm. somebody or damages a building or whatever right Mm -hmm. uh again Back to who, the you know, who's you know who's liable for that the right security. right transition so uh and again i it, and part of it too is is the privacy of your own data so again i, I think there's but again i think there i think there are ways tech from a technological standpoint that you can give people the keys to their own products and to their own data mm-hmm. where they can go and, and do this or modify this and again maybe there does need to be some level of sort of liability shifting that does say that, yeah, you, you have the right to repair, but
2: Once you, you, you kind of have to yeah.
1: you know, deal with the consequences of that.
0: Right, I, I don't right, know.
1: There's, I'm right. sure there's a middle ground to be had there. Right. Mm-hmm. So no, you're, I totally agree. you're in your self-driving Tesla and it runs over your neighbor. Right. You were Tesla. Right. Who's liable. That's my yeah. favorite new debate. Cause I n- there's no right answer. Right. Right.
2: right. Yeah. That's going to be a, that's going to be a good one for the lawyers to make a lot of money on. And, oh yeah. And debate for a long time. Yeah. Um, but that's going to be where all of it goes, right? Who, who is liable? And at the end of the day, who's making the decision to mm-hmm. run over that person right. or not run over that person? You know, you know, we've talked about it before. You know, when someone's driving down the road and there's a squirrel, you know, I'm the type of person that's going to avoid hitting the squirrel. But I it's know some people technic- that would hit that, way squirrel, safer right? to hit that squirrel, yeah, right? Yeah, so, like, what's the right decision and who makes it? You know, like, and that's not even something you got to worry about legal concerns over until we have to provide you know services for squirrels squirrels get a really bad lawyer i know yeah yeah so yeah it's it'll be interesting for sure and i can guarantee the right to repair on a tesla is going to be a a tough sell for 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 the folks there as well
0: yeah (laughs) yeah yeah but there are, I mean, there's a huge community of people that, mm-hmm. that constantly, you know, modify them, hack them, everything mm-hmm. else, right? I mean, it's it's, kind of, it's it's kind of been something that's happened to vehicles since, uh, you know, the dawn of vehicles, right? Is right, people right. tinkering and, and messing with them and stuff like that, right? Well, autom-
2: Automotive is a great example. I mean, up until fairly recent, you can go to any auto parts store and, and fix almost anything you needed to fix on mm-hmm. your car. We've kind of got away from that in a lot of ways. I mean, even like, if you could fix it, you still got to take it to the dealership and have them potentially flash something, right, update right. something in the ECU. Yep. It's no longer a hey, I replaced my, you know, O2 sensor, I'm good to go. You know, right. it's a yeah. well that module need, no it, longer talks to this right. module. Which you need to, to get some module. calibration done, and, and you know, and that's not necessarily an expertise everyone has, not alone right. equipment to do it. Well, so and they don't release the kind ability of away to do it. that.
1: Right. Like I General is like won't release the ability for you like reflash those modules together right. unless you're a certified repair place.
2: And I think some of that hesitation again is even with taking things apart is I think a lot of big companies are are afraid of exposing some of their IP because in order to fix something, you have to have some amount of understanding of how it works. Mm -hmm. And some people don't want you looking under the hood because you may learn a little bit about their secret recipe and run off with it. Now Mm -hmm. we all know how it goes. Like you can run off with something, but you still got (laughs) to go build an entire company. Like you can rip off Apple and Tesla all day long, but good luck trying to build a, company a brand. equivalent, yeah. a brand, right? right? Mm. Like, so there is some, some balance there.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think it's a, I think it's a, a wildly, you know, interesting topic. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. We, t- we talk about, you know, all the different, you know, technology and, and components and ICs mm-hmm. that, you know, go into this stuff that is so hard to repair. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> heck half the battle today is just, is just, you know, getting your hands getting on said right. ICs and stuff like that. Right. So yeah. obviously that's uh Majorly affected a lot of industries, a lot of people that produce things within the industry. But I would say even right now, you know, the, the part shortages uh, are are coming to impact us on the product development side. And I know mm. that I've certainly had a lot of conversations with a lot of our partners and vendors in terms of you know just saying, hey, if if I can't get my hands on the right chips and ICs and stuff to design them in you know where are we going to be at here in a year or two from a product Mm -hmm. development standpoint so i'll be real interested to see how the chip shortage and the part shortage actually i mean obviously it's having big impacts on people's ability to build product today but i almost wonder whether or not it's going to stifle a little bit of innovation here Mm -hmm. uh, in another you know 12 to 18 months in terms Mm -hmm. of the products that aren't hitting the market, the new products that aren't out there simply because people couldn't um, couldn't couldn't design
1: them, and, right? And it's, what's amazing to me is not, like it doesn't surprise me that like for production volumes, the lead times have gotten nuts, right? Sure, sure. It's crazy that it's gotten so desperate that there literally isn't anything left on the open market. Like for like, you know, if I wanted to buy five of something, mm-hmm. they don't exist. Like the fuel chips right. and the battery stuff. Yep. Like mm-hmm. I just found out that, you know, another part we need for like a bunch of products we make, doesn't exist right now and isn't right. going to for a long time.
2: And unfortunately we're still a good distance away of being able to 3d print microchips oh. you know, like one, <laughs> yeah. one day. I, I have no doubt we're going to get there, but yeah. and kind of yeah. getting, you know, full circle back to, you know, prototyping tools and stuff. You know, I think a lot of the early hope was that, you know, if you had a failure in something, you know, simple would be um, you lose the back of your TV remote, right? Sure. You know, now I go to Samsung, I download, you know, the little cover file Mm -hmm. and my little home printer spits it out. And now I'm back functioning again. So I think there's going to be a kind of combination where this 3d printing world and this whole right to repair maybe actually merge together in a place where everyone kind of benefits yeah. from it now again like we can't 3d print chips yet but i you, you you'd be surprised where we're, we're gonna getting end up we're to getting real boards. close you know yeah. yeah there's several companies that are i heard very that, impressive on the circuit board i heard printing, that so.
0: dyson had a program going and i read this a little while ago so i don't know if they're still doing this or not but i think they had a program where basically they would uh ship you like relatively like high-end uh 3d printer Mm. uh to like you i think you could fill out like an application to be like a vendor for them like and they would set them up all around the country and the whole concept was
2: like at repair uh, shops or whatever yeah
0: sort of no i mean i think this is like literally just like everyday people they would Mm. drop ship you you know a 3d printer and instructions how to use it and again i think there were some qualifications in terms of kind of you know knowing a little bit about Mm -hmm. a 3d printing and stuff but essentially uh when people needed parts for their Dyson's and you know there's all these different models and lots of different plastic parts in them. Uh, like every morning they would just get a list of like the components that they would need to make or it might even like automatically queue it up and they would just set up the 3D printer to print the parts mm-hmm. and then they would mm-hmm. package them and, yeah. and then ship them. And, There's, I think, a lot of interesting concept there in terms of um, even just just time savings, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you have somebody, you know, literally in the state of Indiana, for instance, that can 3D print your Dyson part and and basically ship it to you, you know, USPS first class in a day Mm -hmm. uh, from the time that you need that part. I think there's a lot of really cool implications just in terms of you know, reducing the parts inventory that the manufacturer needs to have, uh, reducing the lead time for it, stuff like that. Again, even in today's day and age, like everybody wants to be just in time, Mm -hmm. right? As far as manufacturing and lean. And how'd that turn out this year? Well, right. right, And, but like, how do you, how do you use technology to sort of potentially combat both those things,
2: Mm -hmm. right? Fill the gap.
0: Yeah. I think if you could put the means of production super close to where the consumers need it um and and to a certain extent sort of on demand i think that kind of solves the problem uh, from from both sides. Well, right? and again,
2: that's where everything's at. I mean, we get to think Amazon for that. If I want something, I get online, I buy it, and within the shoot, sometimes by the end of the day, it's at my house already, yeah, right? It so right. It, we've so already broken. become a very instant gratification kind of culture and world. So it's no shocker that that's where we're going with equipment and prototyping. We, yeah. we
0: need it now. <laughs> but to that point, you know, the whole remote deal, like I've not, I feel like I have not seen a whole lot of other companies or people sort of like embrace that mm-hmm. uh, distributed, that. Well, that and again, I think right?
2: we, we get back to the liability piece we get back Mm -hmm. to the people may be afraid to give models you know because that's i think it's their ip and Mm -hmm. um now we all know that we can knock off plastic parts you know pretty yeah, easy and straightforward right? only like a
1: thousand bucks
2: um but i think that's where some of that hesitation yeah. is but i think naturally consumers will drive the market like everything and at mm-hmm. some point there'll be enough of us they're like no give us give us the models we just want to print the part like right it's it's just easier that way and we'll find ways to all make money on it right As, if that's the concern like so char- charge a service fee for it you know right. even if i had to pay a dollar to print the thing or five dollars right. it's still better than you know, I'm trying to watch TV and I don't have a remote now to cover, you know, right. I'm screwed. <laughs> yeah. no i screwed. I need that now, right? I don't have
0: like, a remote covers on, like, any of my remotes in yeah, house because yeah, yeah, my yeah. kids run off with them. I mean, yeah. obviously, it
2: still
1: works without the cover,
0: but, yeah. you know,
2: it's just awkward to hold
1: and all that. Right. You know?
2: yeah.
1: But my <laughs> most exciting thing is, like, I finally think I know what I want to do when I get old. Is like, you know, restore cars. That's a super fun thing to do. Sure, yeah. And what's crazy is there's going to be these cars that are old enough now that there aren't spare parts for anymore. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the what used to happen is there have, there'd be these little shops that would pop up that would then go remake castings for, you know, Model T or something like that. Right, right. And that used to be very, they'd be crazy expensive and low volume and long lead. Nowadays, for a reasonable retiree, like, garage shop budget, you can build out a garage mm-hmm. that can just have you make all of the parts. Right.
2: Or you get, like, a, a Mark Forge or whatever. Yeah, right? you get, can yeah, do metal parts. Yeah, yeah me you do three print Or, or yeah. even
1: then, go get a cheap Tormach CNC like sure mm-hmm. it's not a hostage sure you gotta like love it to get it in tolerance right, right. but for a reasonable amount of money you can build a garage shop and literally make a car mm-hmm. between 3D printing CNC and like fusion and things like you just design it up right, and right. if you have the time to do it one piece by one piece like you could just do that by yourself and build most right. things, which is so cool to me.
2: Minus the electronics, it's always the yeah. problem. It is. It is. No, no, but but, it, where's but, the extro- But Randy, no, we need those guys to step it up. I need. That's it, why need you got to do it for old cars. Yeah, yeah. There's no electronics. Yeah.
0: So I mean, I think right. like the accessibility, obviously, for product development in terms of you know methods, prototyping, all of that. I mean, is an all-time high. But I think also a big part of what is fueling, I, I think, some really cool things on on the product development side of things too is just like the ability to, to share how that works with, with the world. Right. Mm-hmm. I so mean, I think
1: like YouTube university, yeah, YouTube university, I think the even, universe.
0: even just the accessibility in terms of, of being able to capture content, make it look good. Um, and, and really just, just share with people. I think the coolest thing that, that I have found, and this has only gone up way more in the last like 10 years is Like if I need to repair something, I mean, I had to repair some stuff on like my Mazda. There was some like a a broken latch uh, for my glove box. And literally it it took me like 25 seconds to find the video online. Like I literally was able to buy the part from the service department, watch the YouTube video and fix my car Mm
2: -hmm.
0: twice or three times as fast as it would have taken the dealership to actually drive my car back Go to a service bay. Even if they found a technician that knew exactly how to replace that part, it still would have probably taken longer oh, yeah. than me uh, finding a YouTube video, watching a forty-five second YouTube video, and then actually repairing mm-hmm. uh, the car. So, I mean, I don't know. Like, Ricky, do you want to talk about a little bit about? I mean, obviously, uh, we've been you know doing a lot to capture you know what we can or more of. I think just the actual methods and uh, ways that we go about developing products at Glassboard. But right. I guess maybe talk a little bit about just. I don't know, like, the ability to to share that stuff with the world uh, in a high-quality way and just how much, like, easier it is for people to do that today than, than ever before.
3: Right. I mean, me coming into product development, YouTube taught me almost everything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I learned how to use Fusion, learned how to do the Shapeoko CNC, mm-hmm. Bantam, you know, the 3D printers. I mean, you taught me a lot of that, but, like, still, it's just YouTube is my college for the most part, (laughs) you know, so
1: I taught you, like Ricky, watch this particular video. (laughs) I found that's perfect. (laughs)
3: Right, right, That's right. right. So, yeah. And I mean, I hope that in the future that that's what we can do. Something we can do is uh, just make YouTube videos. And it's a easy way for people to learn, you know, product development. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Pretty easily. Yeah. Learn what we're doing. I mean, again, like obviously
2: you need to follow Glassboard social media in every way because Ricky's pumping out we some really cool material one. but um i know you know as as a again as as a the ceo of the company and business owner like it's very nice when we can actually show people what we do right because um, we can talk all day about all the cool engineering and all that and and right. and, and right. other engineers may think it's really cool right but really at the end of the day our products are being used by people who aren't engineers most of the time um, and it's nice to be able to show them that in a way that's a little bit more digestible than us sitting and talking about all the mm-hmm. technical stuff you know it's like right. this is a real product and, yeah. Um, you know, that that's a big part of product development is that that branding and how it looks and being able to share it with people and how easy it's to share with people. So um, yeah, well, I think even a
0: lot of people are probably wondering, like, why is this called the Glass Labs podcast? Right. And I think the concept really for us is, uh, you know, Glass Lab, as far as Glass Board, which is, you know, the product development side of our company, I think our vision, or at least my vision for this kind of this Glass Lab uh, name is really going to be a way. Um, it's it's really it's, it's like the window into product development is is sort of mm-hmm. the tagline there, right? And my hope for this is through this podcast. I think through uh, some of the videos and stuff that that you're working on, uh, Ricky, and um, you know just just other things, open source software, open source hardware. I think to the extent in which we're able to share the tips, the tricks, the tools, uh, show behind the scenes what product development uh today looks like i i feel like um you know that's kind of all going to be under these this umbrella for the glass lab because um i think as cool as getting to uh create products for other companies and people every day like you said ricky i think the ability to share that whole process with other people and get more people interested um, and this side of things I think is is really cool. I mean, obviously, right, right. you know, software is eating the world today. And, and <laughs> we we certainly write plenty of software for the products that we develop. But um, I, I think, you know, product development needs some love, too, in terms of showing people, uh, you know, how it's done, what that process looks like. Because I think the more people can see that, the more people can maybe realize like, oh, like, you know, creating something you know, a product isn't as intimidating as, as I thought it was, right? right I mean, right. you know, pretty much anybody with a laptop today can go create an app, right? Um, and I think in many ways, anybody can create a, you know, a hardware product. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, you know, showing them the the ways that you can do that uh, um, affordably,
1: quickly, uh, and and not have to like reinvent the, the wheel every time, right? And right. I think like that's a good transition, like the plug in, like if you own a laptop and you need to make something and you don't want to buy your own tools, like Plug the makerspace that we're in, right? Yeah. We're in machine here. and yeah, machine's a an excellent tech. place
2: for that. And yeah. so, you
1: know, we grew up before Indianapolis had a makerspace or a co-working space. So, you know, we had to slowly acquire our own tools along the way and kind of build that up. But today, you know, had I been starting a startup and trying to do hardware, I would join a makerspace because oh you can for yeah. you know
2: the accessibility. Yeah, for yeah. such a low fee. A sl- low yeah. fee a
1: month, you can come in and get access to yeah. not only the tools, because that's the only part of the, the, the story that no one gets. Like, yes, you get access to the tools, and that's great. Right. You get the access expertise. to a, a room of people that are crazy and like minded and driven like you are. You can bounce your idea off. They yep. can teach you a new skill how to use a vacuum form or a CNC. How do you, oh, I model that differently because that looks like you're running up against this problem, right? Or, oh, I, I design my circuit differently. And that, mm. cur- like, camaraderie is really important in engineering and product development, right? Yeah, However the, much everyone absolutely. thinks we're... The
0: community aspect of yeah, it, right? Absolutely. Everyone yep. thinks we're
1: introverts that, you know, slide pizza under the door once a week and keep us alive. That's honestly not what I think most, what I'm going to say product <laughs> development engineers are. Right. I think that it is a different breed. Most of us are incredibly social. If you look at our office, mm-hmm. you know, we're nerdy. We, you know, we like Star Wars or Star Trek for one of us at the table. Um, <laughs> we'll one, names. one heathen, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, but we're all incredibly gregarious now going and we feed off the energy of each other and the people that use our products. I think that's a huge yeah. motivation that a lot of the guys I talk to, you know, high school kids or middle school kids when they're talking about, oh, engineering, that sounds boring. You just do math all day. I'm like, no, mm. like I didn't do well in math in college, but computers do it for me now. Yeah, calculators you know, are great. Right. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, kind of as we wrap things up here on the uh, the first uh, episode here, um, I think we kind of already hinted at it. I mean, um, we're going to be sitting down and, and talking to uh, Alex Bandar in the future, um, who is, uh, you know, the, the manager here at uh, Machine. I think the goal is also to maybe talk to some of the folks at uh, 16 Tech, which yep. is sort of the greater campus uh uh, that we're at right now. So, um, again, I mean, I, if you guys are interested in, in, product development or just, uh, you know, here in Indianapolis, uh, the 16 tech space in general, uh, that's definitely going to be some folks that we're talking to here, uh, you know, pretty soon on, uh, on, on the new podcast on the show. So. Yeah.